I've always had an issue with Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. The verses of Scripture say this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I've always struggled with those verses because Christians would always quote them when they had no other answer to a tough situation. I always saw them as kind of a spiritual shoulder shrug, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what else to say, so I'll just spout off Isaiah. Well, God's ways aren't my ways, and his thoughts aren't my thoughts, so basically he's, he's, he's under, you can't understand him, right? That's the way it worked, which doesn't really help if you're feeling clueless in that moment. And I don't know about you, but I often feel clueless when it comes to God. Sometimes I don't understand his ways, I don't understand his thoughts, and so I just get ticked off, and it ends up in an argument that basically, from my perspective, goes like this. God, you just don't make sense. Your ways can be very confusing. Why can't your ways be more like mine? Why can't your thoughts be more like mine? Why are your ways so easily misunderstood? And when I talk that way, what I'm really doing is I'm just revealing my worldview, right? The truth is every one of us has a worldview that often competes with our understanding of God. And when I run into skeptics, which happens on a regular basis, they think that as Christians we're just unbelievably deceived because our worldview just got downloaded from the Bible and we're just kind of mindlessly following along. And whenever we run into an issue that causes someone to actually think, we just kind of go, I don't know. His ways aren't my ways. His thoughts aren't my thoughts. I don't get it any more than anybody else. So can we just have a really, really honest moment? The truth is this. As a believer in Jesus, I do have a worldview but so does everybody else. In fact, I put it in your outline this way. Every person is developing a worldview based on observation and experience. Everybody in the room is working on a worldview right this second, okay? Now, it's true. As, as a follower of Jesus, I try to base my life on a biblical worldview. I base my view, my worldview on relationships out of Ephesians chapter 5, which says, as a husband, I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church, and Jesus died for the church, which means I spend my entire life trying to die to my selfish desires so that I can serve and love my wife. Not always easy, but that's what Scripture says. I base my worldview on how I treat other people from Philippians. Because the book of Philippians tells me that as a follower of Jesus, I'm supposed to be a servant of all and consider others greater than myself. So that becomes my worldview. I base my worldview on compassion from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, that says I'll be blessed if I'm willing to show mercy and compassion and to bring peace into every situation that I'm a part of. So I do my best to base my worldview from Scripture. And the reality is you may not agree with my source for a worldview, but you're creating a worldview every single day, and it actually is a faith position, okay? You may be creating your worldview on relationships based on the TV show Couples Therapy from VH1. Good luck with that, okay? You may be creating your worldview on success based on a group of rappers who sing sexual songs about God's daughters and then go to award shows and accept awards with these words. I'd like to thank God. And you're like, what? How does that go together? You may be forming your spiritual worldview based on the inconsistencies you see in other people's spiritual lives instead of basing it off of the God that they're following. And that's why you're always disappointed when nobody meets your expectations. The truth is our worldview can make God very difficult to understand unless, of course, we actually invest in trying to hear His heart above the noise of the world that competes for our attention. So let me illustrate this as best I can, okay? Grew up in a little church in Canada, and once a month we would do something called Friend Day, okay? And the, basically the plea went like this. If you love Jesus, you'll invite a friend, 
okay? If you don't love Jesus, you'll come alone or something like that. And it was, that was weird, okay? So I had a friend named Don McEachran, and because I love Jesus, I invited Don to come to church. And this was weird. He said, yes. I know that's surprising, but he said, sure, I'll come to church with you. So on a Sunday morning, I walked across the, 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 the playground of Linden Lanes Elementary School because Don lived on the other side of the playground. I knocked on his door and picked him up, and we went to church together. And he walked in the front door, and there was a guy standing there in a suit, and I'm sure he was thinking, that's kind of a nice uniform that you're wearing there, and that's cool. And then we walked into the building, and we sat down in a pew. Why they called them that, I have no idea, all right? And the service began, and we sang number 372. We sang verses 1, 3, and 4. Why we always skip the second verse, I have no idea, but that's just what we did, okay? And when we started singing, two worldviews crashed headlong into each other. Because I just started singing because that's what we did. And this is what we sang. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty state. I'm just singing, right? Because that's what you do. And I look at Don, and he has absolute horror on his face. I'm like, welcome to church, you know? <laughs> Aren't you glad you came? And, and then we sat down, and then they made him stand up and introduce himself to everybody, which was just really weird. And then the pastor yelled at him for an hour, and I was thinking, I'm going to miss my friend, you know? This is, this is not going well. And as we're walking home, Don asked a question that was completely logical and years later blew my mind. Here was his question. So, how's Manuel doing? Think about it, all right? I'd never seen that song from somebody else's worldview. In my worldview, that song made sense. I'd been taking communion for a long time. I sang other songs about the blood of Jesus. I, re I memorized 1 Corinthians 1.18 in Awana. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I mean, to me, it made perfect sense. From Don's perspective, that song was weird. I mean, what are you talking about? you got fountains filled with blood taken from some poor guy named Manuel, and I don't know if he did it willingly or not willingly, and, and sinners are getting forcibly plunged underneath of the blood fountain, and somehow they're coming out with fewer stains. How does that make sense? My mom always told me blood was the hardest thing to get out of my T-shirt. <laughs> Can we all agree that's confusing, right? I got an email a while ago after a communion service, and I quote, Dear Pastor, why is God so obsessed with blood? I've been reading my Bible, and there's more blood than a Twilight novel, okay? <laughs> if you don't know what that is, ask somebody under, like, 16 or something like that, okay? She said, and this morning in church, it was all about blood in small plastic glasses. I'm confused. Why is the Bible so bloody? It's a good question. Let's see if we can find some answers. Let's seek to learn about God's thoughts and God's ways because maybe it'll change our ways and our thoughts. I mean, we could just walk out of here thinking God's obsessed with blood or we could open our minds to find out just exactly what it is that he's saying and maybe we'll, we'll be able to find that, that there's some peace in aligning our worldview with what God's really saying. All right, when I think of the word blood, many images come to mind. 
The first image that I get is that little kid on the YouTube video that probably some of you saw. His little brother gets injured, and so he's trying to tell his dad, and he keeps going, blood, blood. And his dad starts laughing at him. He's like, not funny, not funny, blood, blood. That's what I think about when I hear the word blood. I think about a crime scene from CSI where the blood spatter is used to convict a criminal. I think about a pasty vampire from Forks, Washington, who just got married and needs some relational counseling. If you don't understand that, talk to somebody younger, okay? Because of the world that I live in, when I think of blood being shed, I think about death. Would it surprise you to know that God thinks exactly the opposite of what I think? Exactly the opposite. The Bible speaks about blood more than 400 times. And the truth is, there is a trail of red from the first chapter of Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation. It starts with Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin. They sin and they're ashamed and they want to cover themselves. And the Bible says that God takes the skin of animals and he covers the shame of his children. Now, unless there were some naked animals running around, this is the first time that an animal ever lost its life to cover the sins of people, okay? And if, if you're a member of PETA, don't get yourself all in a knot, okay? This is actually going to work out really well for you, all right? God institutes a system of animal sacrifice to cover the sins of people. And we learn a really, really, really tough truth. There's always a price to be paid for sin. That's true, isn't it? Every time we sin, there's a cost in shame, in consequences, in broken relationships, in guilt. And yes, every time we sin, there's a price to God. I've often wondered if God established this animal sacrificial system so that we could feel and understand the cost of sin in a really tangible way. Because for centuries, people would bring an animal to the Old Testament priest to sacrifice it so that it would cover their sins before God because there's always a price to be paid for sin. That's why Hebrews 9.22 says this. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything is cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So people would bring an animal to the Old Testament priest. The priest would kill the animal, sprinkle its blood on the base of the altar. Once a year, there was a very special day. You see it on your calendar all the time, you just may not know what it is. It's called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was a holy day when the blood of an animal was sprinkled in the most sacred inner sanctum of the Old Testament temple. And then when that was done, the priest would emerge and he would blow a horn. And whenever an Israelite would hear that horn, they would think one thing. God forgives. God forgives. The whole system was rooted in a covenant that was made between God and an Old Testament guy by the name of Abraham. You can actually read about it in Genesis chapter 15. God comes to Abraham and says, look, here's the deal. If you will be completely obedient to what I'm asking you to do, I'm going to use you as the basis for an entire nation that became the modern nation of Israel. Okay? And in Genesis 15... They actually seal that covenant, that promise, with a ceremony. And if you don't understand the ceremony, it's kind of gross, but the outcome is actually amazing. God tells Abraham, bring some sacrifices, some animal sacrifices, and cut them in half. And place them on either side of a path. Like, actually think like a little wooded path going up a hill. Put them on either side. And let the blood drain and mix together as it runs down this path blood of the animals ran together and they actually called it a blood path and in this culture in this worldview if you were making an agreement that you wanted to last for a lifetime you would walk a blood path with the person you were making the agreement with it's a big deal 
in this worldview, you also understood that if you were willing to walk a blood path with somebody and you broke your part of the covenant, you were willing to die for that. It was a big deal. So Abraham has this opportunity, right? I mean, God says, if you're going to be completely obedient, you're going to walk this path with me. Well, here's what Abraham knows. I can't be completely obedient. I'm a human being. I'm going to make mistakes. Abraham knew he couldn't be obedient. And the Bible actually says he was scared to death. You think? He's being asked to make an agreement. He knows he can't keep his end of the bargain. Here's the amazing part. If you read Genesis 15, God doesn't make Abraham walk the blood path. He walks it for him. I know you can't keep up your end of the bargain. But I'm going to walk it anyway, and here's my agreement. When you break your part of the agreement, and I know that you will, I'll pay for it with my blood, not yours. God's actions said loud and clear, if you or I ever break this covenant, and God's not going to break the covenant, he knows Abraham will, I'm going to pay for it with my blood. And every time an animal was sacrificed, it made it so that the people would symbolically say, God, I know that I've sinned, but remember that covenant that you made? You remember that? And let this sacrifice cover me. So for centuries, blood runs freely as people sin and God forgives. And then 2,000 years ago, here's the incredible part of the story. God says, enough, enough. God establishes a new covenant. That's why whenever we take communion, we say, we quote Jesus saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. That's what he's talking about. God sends Jesus as a sacrifice once and for all to shed his blood, not just to cover sin as the blood of animals used to do, but to actually remove it. It's expunged from the record. The Bible often calls Jesus a spotless lamb. It's imagery, okay? It doesn't mean Jesus has four legs, a woolly coat, and says, bah. Okay, that's not what it's talking about. No, it's saying he's the perfect sacrifice. And once it was offered, that could actually remove sin for all time. That's why the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus this way. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. Okay? There's the animal system. But he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. It means Jesus came as a perfect sacrifice. Verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. It basically means the Old Testament system got rid of the old stuff on the outside, but it never dealt with what was going on on the inside. Verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will it cleanse our consciences from acts that led to death so that we may serve the living God? I mean, God's just like, hey, 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 don't you understand? This is my thoughts. These are my ways. My son Jesus is going to come and set you free from sin. He's going to be the spotless lamb that's going to make a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is never going to know sin of his own, so he's going to take on the sins that you have committed both the ones that you did on purpose and the ones that you omitted. And, and this is the amazing part. God said this about his son. Jesus is going to be treated as if he had done every sin that we have ever done or will ever do. Okay, so you just think about that. Everything that anyone in this room has ever done wrong is placed on Jesus. Every reckless word, every lie, every evil thought, every immoral act, all of that stuff is poured out on Jesus. And he's going to be treated as if he'd done every sin that we've ever done, ever. He's going to take it on himself. And then this is the amazing exchange. 
Jesus is going to be treated as if he did everything we've ever done. And then God says, and then I'm going to treat you as if you've done everything that Jesus ever did. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. That means when Jesus looks at you, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you in your wrecked and ruined state. He sees you according to what Jesus did for you. You know what that means? It means we're not just sinners anymore. We're no longer condemned. We're no longer judged. We're no longer living with a death sentence. Suddenly, because of the blood of Jesus, we've actually been transformed. In fact, you know what the Bible calls me? I don't get it. Still working it out. The Bible doesn't refer to me as something that's broken and ugly. It actually calls me a saint. Well, but as uncomfortable with that as there is a fountain filled with blood, you know? But that's what Scripture says. In our modern worldview, the shedding of blood means death. But in God's ways, in God's thoughts, if you read Scripture, the blood of Jesus means life. Let me tell you, let me just unpack this for you. If you know Jesus and you follow Christ, this is what the blood of Jesus gives to you. Okay, I'm going to move quickly. I'm going to keep on moving here. The blood of Jesus secures our purity, which means we're not defined by our sin anymore. When we accept Christ, we get his record given to us. 1 John 1, 7. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's how blood can wash something as white as snow. Because it completely removes all of the wreckage, the ruin, and the stains of anything we've ever done. Secondly, the blood of Jesus secures our forgiveness. Colossians 1.14, it says, in whom we have redemption. That's a beautiful word, which literally means to be bought, not once, but twice. We sold ourselves to our own sin, and Jesus bought us back. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Number three, that the blood of Jesus secures our substitute. If you need to know who should have died for their sin 2,000 years ago on a cross, you're looking at him. And every single one of us should have paid that penalty as well. But Jesus became our substitute. That's why John the Baptist, when he's talking about Jesus in John 1, 29, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you notice what it doesn't say? It doesn't say just covered the sin. No, he takes away the sin of the world. So it's removed from your record. Fourthly, the blood of Jesus secures our access. Hebrews chapter 9, or 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. One of my favorite moments on a weekend is on a Friday, or Saturday nights at 5 o'clock up in the prayer room. little group of people meets, and we pray every week that God will hijack all of our services. He'll just take over and do whatever he wants to, because you're his kids, this is his church, it's his building, whatever he wants to do is cool. And I'm always amazed and struck by the fact that everybody in that room understands something. We may be praying in the prayer room at Christ the King Church in Bellingham, Washington, but the second we utter the name of Jesus, we are instantly transported into the throne room of Almighty God. And He wants to talk. And He wants us to hear. And He wants us to be honest and open. And that access was secured when Jesus kicked the door of the throne room of heaven open and said, anybody can walk in here. I don't care what you've done. You can come in here. 
God wants to speak to you about his desperate love for you and how he shed his blood to remove your guilt and your shame. Number five, the blood of Jesus secures our peace. Colossians 1.20 says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God actually allowed us to partner up to have a relationship with Jesus. He established peace between a perfect God and sinful mankind. And he did it through the blood of Jesus. And finally, the blood of Jesus secures our purpose. I get asked this question all the time. I don't know what my purpose in life is. What do you think it is, Grant? I'll tell you what your purpose in life is according to Hebrews 9.14. If you've ever wondered, I don't know what my purpose is, this verse will tell you. The Bible says, How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that led to death? Here's your purpose. So that we may serve the living God. That's your purpose. If you've ever wondered, there it is. Your purpose as a human being is to serve the living God underneath of the covering, underneath of the removal of sin that Jesus made perfect and allowed us through his death on the cross. You want to know why God talks about blood so much? It's because that's what it cost Him to save us. And when you've been saved and transformed, the blood of Jesus is not gross. It's glorious. It's glorious. Last week I shared with you one of the things that I discovered in this series that I didn't expect that I was going to encounter was that I don't take my sin nearly as seriously as God does. When I come before God, and I just like to shrug my sin off, right? That errant word, that little thing that I said, I popped off, lost my temper, I did this, thought evil about somebody. I just like to like, hey, sorry, Jesus, it's all good, right? We're good, moving on. When I view every sin that I commit as being blood-soaked, all of a sudden it's a really big deal. When I see every sin as something that Jesus died for so that that could be removed from my record, suddenly it's not a little thing anymore. It's a really, 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 really big deal. I often hear blood and my thoughts think about crime scenes and stuff like that. And then I hear God's thoughts about the way that the blood of Jesus saved me and I don't know about you, but in that moment, I just kind of stop arguing. And I'm reduced to two words. Thank you. Thank you. For walking a blood path, knowing I couldn't keep up my end of the bargain. Thank you for washing me as white as snow, and I don't deserve it. Thank you for doing something for me I couldn't do for myself. Thank you for living a life that I possibly can't even fathom. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said this, every drop of blood which flowed out of Jesus' body is still in existence today. And it is, just as it was 2,000 years ago, wiping away the sins of mankind. 
The blood has been shed, the incorruptible, eternal, divine, sinless, overcoming, precious blood. It availed then, it avails now, and throughout all of eternity, it will never lose its power to bring life. Not death, to bring life. You know, the truth is, I still don't understand all of God's ways. I don't understand his thoughts. In fact, I would challenge you to, to kind of let that go because of this. If you've got a God you can figure out, not much of a God. What I do know is that while I may not understand all of his ways and all of his thoughts, I know what the blood of Jesus did for me. And I am forever grateful for that. My prayer is that if you know Jesus, that you'll be grateful too. You know, I learned back in Bible college a long, long time ago that if a verse doesn't make sense, you should probably read the verses leading up to it. Just so it does. Can I read the verses to you that come before the spiritual shoulder shrug of my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord? This is what he said before he said that. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and God will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. This is what doesn't make sense to me. According to God's way of thinking and God's way of acting, I don't get what I deserve. That makes no sense. But when I look at it through the lens of the blood of Jesus Christ covering me. I don't understand it. But I sure am grateful. Would you pray with me this morning? Thank you for not giving me what I deserved. I deserved what we talked about last week. And instead, you've chosen to act a different way towards me and think a different way towards me. And you've asked me to align my thoughts and my ways with your ways because you want to poorly, you want, you, you want to fairly just pour out grace and mercy and forgiveness. Lord, I pray we will have understood just a little bit more today why it's so beautiful to talk about blood. Lord, I thank you that the blood of Jesus doesn't mean death. It means life. And I pray for anyone here who's never experienced that life. And I pray today would be the day when they would give their heart completely to you and know that the blood of Jesus was shed for them. So Lord, as we get ready to worship you at the end of this service, I pray that these old words to an old song would 
come alive. I pray that we would be forever grateful because of it. I pray that we would lift our voice and give praise to Jesus today because he did shed his blood to cover our sin, to remove it from our record completely. Lord, I thank you that we don't stand in your presence condemned today, but if we have relationship with you, we stand secure and welcome. We give you honor today as your church for walking the blood path for us. May we never look at the idea of blood the same ever again. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people.